Last time we talked about, by the way, this session is called Hamoyadim. If you have been trying to pronounce that word, I should have asked you to try and see what kind of attempts we had, but oh well. So no, it's called Hamoyadim. It's simply a Hebrew word for God's appointed times. So I like throwing these these words out there. It's just something to talk about. It raises questions. So we're going to talk about, we're going to start a series within the series uh, about the Hamoyadim. Obviously, this is part one. There's going to be three parts, um, maybe four, but probably not, probably just three. Um, but before we get into that, of course, we talked about uh, marriage, uh, the purpose of marriage, um, why it's a thing, why it's mentioned in Scripture, why it's mentioned all over Scripture, and uh, we talked about the first marriage. We talked about the Jewish wedding and how the Jewish wedding is literally like a uh, a model. Um, you could say a prophecy. And the, from the Jewish perspective, remember prophecy is patterns. So patterns in Scripture are considered prophecy. Um, but it's like a, the Jewish wedding is like a pattern of you could say history in a lot of ways, or or the uh, the joining of the of the bridegroom Jesus with the church, the bride. So. Uh, we talked about Gentile brides. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of Gentile brides in Scripture. Whenever you see a Gentile bride in Scripture, um, it's significant for whatever reason. Well, everything in Scripture, of course, is significant. But when you see a Gentile bride, there's probably something very significant there about Jesus and his bride. So, um, for example, Ruth, um, Ruth and Boaz. Um, yeah, we talked about seven Gentile brides. Of course, the seventh being the church. So. And, of course, we talked about Isaac and Rebecca and how their marriage was a very detailed picture of, of Jesus being reunited with his bride, so, or the bride being reunited with the bridegroom. So. And, of course, before that, we talked about Abraham. and the, the, Does anyone remember what that was called? G Genesis 22? Uh, Akita. Akita, very good. No, it's not the Akita. But you can call it that. That's okay. All right, so the goals for this session, of course, are to have an understanding of um, our Jewish roots as Christians. We're going to talk about, a, we're going to delve deep into some Jewish history, um, some church history, and it's, it's dark. I'll just, I'll just start with that, lead off with that. We're going to talk about some really dark things, but then we're going to um, explain why we're talking about that and kind of move on from there. Some of the things we have to understand so we can kind of get a good perspective of this stuff. We're going to talk about the origins, of course, of anti-Semitism. Um, we're going to talk about two, two festivals or feasts. You can call them feasts. I like to call them festivals because you don't eat in all of them. So uh, festivals is a more of a common for, uh, word for these. But we're going to talk about two of the seven feasts of Moses or festivals of Moses, Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Those are very, very well-known, probably the mo two most well-known. Everything okay out there? Oh, is it raining? Me. Oh, okay. No, no, you're fine. I saw everyone looking out the window. I was making sure everything's okay. Um, uh, if it starts getting hot, some Dave, you want to be the? No, Brian threatened me. Oh, Brian threatened you? Yeah, I didn't realize. By the way, that controls the entire hallway. Yeah. So I learned that way last week. Anyway, so wear your coats, I guess, if I'm in here. All right. So festival of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. And we're going to talk about how these festivals foreshadow Jesus and how he fulfills them. 
So I took my entire teacher version and then made the student version out of this. So it should line up. Um, if there's a typo there, it's here too. So um, if, we, if you have any questions, though, if something's confusing, just let me know. All right, so we're going to first start with our Jewish roots. So as Christians, we need to understand our Jewish roots. I was raised as the Old Testament's kind of eh, kind of old. I mean, it's called the Old Testament. We don't really need it. That's what I was kind of... They didn't say that, but it kind of felt that way when they taught. We went all through New Testament stuff, kind of pointed to some stuff in the Old Testament or drew or made or, you know, had little colorful coloring pages, you know, in Sunday school and stuff, but we didn't really go into detail of the Old Testament. So um, you'll hear people say that, oh, it's just that old, all that Jewish stuff we don't need to talk about, but... We'll talk about, um, we're going to talk about why we need to understand that. So many Christian teachings take on a deeper meaning in a Jewish context. <clears throat> you all know the story of the, <clears throat> of the, uh, oh, what is he called? I always forget them. I always have these brain stops. Um, the, uh, how the boy, the man, the boy who left and spent everything and came back. What's he called? Thank you, prodigal son. I couldn't think of that word. Ah, oh, thank you. All right. So, Lord, please bring me the words. No. Um. So the prodigal son, you know, he he left. He his his lowest low was. Do you remember what he was eating? Pigs. Yeah, pig stuff. He was eating with the pigs. So from a Christian point of view, that sounds gross. From a Jewish point of view, that's really gross because pigs and swine are, you know, strictly no-no in the, in the Torah and so forth. So, yeah, very unclean. So when there's, when there's scriptures about storks dropping a ephah of grain of, uh, and there's a woman in the... Anyway, so storks are also unclean. So that's just, you got to understand those... those those uh, perspectives and so some if you find something that doesn't make sense sometimes looking at it from a Jewish perspective will help um, <clears throat> the Old Testament is anticipatory of the per person mission and achievement of Jesus Christ so the entire Old Testament is literally and I say literally the literally the entire Old Testament points to Jesus and the entire New Testament looks back to Jesus so so what's that mean the entire Bible is about Jesus of course so that's two reasons why we should understand our Jewish roots. We're going to go into some history, too, so you can kind of, kind of understand that better. But the Bible, of course, is a Jewish book, not just parts of it, but the Bible is a Jewish book. Um, the bulk of it, of course, is the Old Testament. <clears throat> Detail, it, the, the entire Bible details the origins and history of the nation of Israel. Well, of course, the Old Testament does that, but... Of course, the New Testament was written. The Old Testament was written in a period of several thousand years. The New Testament was written in a lifetime. Okay, so you got long time, little time, New Testament, but um, but they do fit together. So <coughs> most of the writers are Jewish. You might have heard people say that all the writers are Jewish. They might have been. They're, they're, it doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. It's not like you had to be a Jew to be a writer in the scriptures. Um, but most of the writers are. <clears throat> Luke had a Gentile background, but he could have been Jewish. We'll just ask him one of these days. Not a big deal. 
There's a guy named Sir William Ramsey. Does anyone know that name? He was an archaeologist. He was an atheist. Uh, his, he went into uh, Asia Minor trying to disprove Scripture, not trying to disprove Luke specifically because his writings are very, very detailed. There's a lot of med- There's more medical terms in Luke's book. That's why people, people believe he, they call him Dr. Luke. Um, um, but there were, uh, this guy went into uh, this, this William Ramsey went into Asia Minor trying to uh, disprove him, basically, and learned that he had not made any historical accuracies or inaccuracies. Um, and he actually became a believer after that. So if you want to check him out, William Ramsey, R-A-M-S-A-Y, Ramsey, I guess. So chapter 4 of, uh, of, the, of Daniel is, of course, not written by a, a Jew. It's actually written by a world leader, a Gentile world, world, world ruler, you could write Nebuchadnezzar if you want to spell that out by memory. Good luck. I think I'm about, I can get it about 75% right, but I know it starts with an N and ends with an R. So. All right, our Savior is Jewish. There's still people that say he's not. Um, that's just pure ignorance, honestly. Um, he obviously descended from the lineage of David. You had to be from that line in order to be, well, that, that's one of the requirements to be the king and so forth. So for the Davidic covenant, which hasn't been completed yet because Jesus has not come back to rule as king on the earth yet. Um, when people say that the millennial kingdom is just an allegory, it's not really a thousand years, it's not, he's not really coming here to rule, then they're saying that God lied about the Davidic covenant because the Davidic covenant specifically says Jesus is going to come back, you know, do all these things. So that's a fulfillment of that covenant. And of course, God doesn't break his covenants. So um, he descended from the lineage of David. Uh, Mary, there's, there, there's some, we were, me and Dave were talking about this earlier. Mary through Nathan, the Luke th- uh, 3, 23 through 37. It seems to indicate Joseph, but there's some thought that that's actually Mary's line as well. So just do with that what you want. Do your own study on that if you want. But um, Joseph through Solomon. Nathan, um, Joseph through Solomon. So Mary and Joseph were both from the lineage of David. And of course, that lineage, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but one of Satan's strategies is to destroy the Jewish people. How many knew that? It's kind of obvious, right? So there's a, when, when he's trying to prevent the, line, the messianic line that's been prophesied, you can kind of see God saying, "Check this, watch this," you know, because he he throws some loops in there, and and you know the messianic line is completed, obviously, but it's a really, it's a really uh, obscure and um, really a miraculous you know lineage for it to have worked out the way it did. So <clears throat> uh, he strictly Jesus strictly kept the Mosaic law. So ethnically, he's a Jew, and he practiced the Mosaic Law. He observed the festivals. He fulfilled the law, actually. Well, he's fulfilling the law. He's, that's one of his, uh, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. Uh, he quoted the Old Testament many times. Does anyone remember what book he quoted from most? Deuteronomy. Yeah, Deuteronomy. David, you can go back and David. Dave, you can go back and count that if you want. 
He's my verifier. Who would I be without you? <laughs> All right. Um, his death sentence was king of the Jews. He had literally died for who he was. Because of who he was. I just realized I have prodigal son written right here on, the, on my notes. I didn't even see it. <clears throat> One of the things also about the, uh, the perspective of, uh, from a Jewish perspective, is things like Matthew 13, where it talks about the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Okay, what's that mean, right? Well, of course, three measures of flour, does anyone know where that started? When the three, oh, the two angels and God showed up to Abraham and they came out and brought the, make three measures of flour and you know, make, make bread for them, basically. That's actually still a, a tradition over in the Middle East, um, three measures of flour. But when you put leaven in it, it's like, whoa, what's that for? What's leaven represent? Sin, right, right. So leaven represents sin. So kingdom of heaven is like sin or leaven or um, it's sometimes a, it has a Gentile feel to it. So Gentiles were always considered the sinners um, when we all are actually. But so that's, yeah, when you, when you see leaven, think of sin. And then, of course, Matthew 13, the pearl of great price. What's significant about a pearl? It's not a kosher um, uh, jewel. It's actually an unkosher jewel because it's a secretion in an oyster um, brought on by an irritation, which that's why it's, com it's actually compared to the church because the church is an unclean, you could say it's unclean because it's got Gentile and Jew mixed. Um, anyway, the, the Pearl of Great Price has a lot of characteristics of the church, so um, as, a, as the pearl specifically, so anyway. All right, so this is where we get into the, the dark stuff. So anti-Semitism. We need to understand what anti-Semitism is. Probably all know what it is, but why it's a thing, it's, it's, it's really bad. It's evil. We're going to talk about that, um, <clears throat> its origins, and why we shouldn't encourage it or participate in it. Not saying we do, but um, so it's defined as hostility to or prejudice against Jews. And anti-Semitism is satanic. I mean, it's evil. We're going to talk about why uh, hatred against Jews has never been, it's always been around. So Satan's strategy, like we talked about, has always been to prevent the Messiah from being born. Of course, he failed there. And exterminate the Jews. Why do you think he's still trying to get rid of the Jews even after Jesus? Because there's still promises to them. There's still promises to the Jews. What happens in the tribulation at the end? The remnant does what? They all turn to Jesus. They turn to Jesus. They call upon the name of the Lord, and he comes back. So if there's no Jews, you know, he, G, Satan literally thinks he can somehow thwart God's plan that's already, you know, it's kind of realistically been completed since he, you know, it's, it's God's plan. So <clears throat> we just haven't observed all of it being completed yet, obviously, so. Anti-Semitism is satanic. So Satan's strategy has always been to prevent the Messiah from being born and exterminate the Jewish people. If there are no Jews, there can be no Messiah or remnant during the tribulation. So <clears throat> I'm going to go through a few examples here of some ways that Satan has tried to exterminate the Jewish people. 
Uh, <clears throat> of course, in Genesis 6, you can just write the number out there. The fallen angels, also called the sons of God, literally contam- try to contaminate the human race by having relations with human women, creating the hybrids we call uh, giants and so forth. Um, so you could say there was a, uh, there was a um, you know, a blood, a, you know, a bloodline issue back in those days, and that's probably why. That's one reason why people think the entire world was wiped out because the only righteous people or the only people that put their faith in God were eight people, Noah and his family, and the rest were literally contaminated bloodlines because of these these Nephilim. So, <clears throat> fallen angels, sons of God. Of course, they're they're instruments of the enemy, try to contaminate Adam's bloodline. Pharaoh decrees that all Hebrew male babies be killed, Exodus 2. You ever wonder why, I heard a podcast about this, why, um, if you're trying to eliminate kids from being born, why they would eliminate just the male babies under two, or the, or sorry, the Of that, yeah, just the Hebrew baby males, not the older ones, the older kids. You ever wonder about that? Another topic, another day. Anyway, um, Pharaoh's pursuit to the Red Sea, Exodus 14. My point was, is that's kind of a foreshadowing of what Herod does. So, yeah, it's very, there's a lot of similarities here. You can tell it's from the same source, so. Haman tries to exterminate the Jewish people. What book's that in? Esther. So a lot of trying to get rid of the entire race. And when people say that Jews aren't a race, it's just a religion. No, there, there's ethnic Jews, there's a Judaism religion, and, you know, anyway, just to clear that up. <clears throat> Uh, Jesus was tempted by Satan, of course. Satan's trying to literally get the Son of God to to uh, sin. Oh, Herod decrees that all boys two and under be killed. Matthew 2. Which is why many believe that, obviously, Jesus was under two when there was a, was a small boy at the time that this happened. <clears throat> Uh, of course, Jesus sent by Satan, Luke 4. Jesus mocked at the cross. If you read Psalm 22, that's a almost like a first-person uh, account of Jesus from the cross. So it's very detailed, very graphic. Um, the first words of the verse, I believe it's either the first words or the, almost the first words. It's the second or first line. Is it the first? Okay, yeah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So... That's literally Jesus' way of saying, hey, go back and read. He couldn't say Psalm 22 because we wasn't you know, labeled that yet. We didn't have chapters and verses and stuff. He's literally saying, hey, go back and read this. you know. And, of course, he's also <clears throat> crying out in anguish, of course, but he knows what that passage said, and that's literally, like I said, like a first-person account of him on the cross. So uh, the dragon, try- of course, the dragon in, in Revelation is symbolic of the enemy, Satan. The dragon trying to devour the woman's child which, of course, the woman's child represents the nation of Israel. That's Revelation 12. 
and now we're getting closer to modern history, uh, the Holocaust, World War II. Does anyone know how many of the Jews were killed? One-third of all Jews were murdered. Not one-third of Jews in Germany, Poland, or whatever, but all Jews, one-third population of the earth. <laughs> it was a very, uh, very dark time. But we're going to talk in a minute here about a later one that's going to happen. Uh, current political climate regarding Jews in Israel. How many can sense anti-Semitism even now? I mean, there's synagogues being attacked. There's, you know, swastikas being spray painted on buildings, and just it's it's just it's all it's all over. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, uh, Daniel's seventieth week. Of course, we call that the tribulation. Um, during the tribulation. In Zechariah 13, 8 through 9, if you want to write 13, 8 through 9 there, it talks. It literally says two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. So it's going to be worse than the Holocaust. It's going to be a, some people call it a second Holocaust. And don't go around saying there's going to be a second Holocaust because that doesn't sound right. I mean, there's people that have done that talking, well, Zechariah says it, you know, and they'll be put on these, you know, anti-Semite watch lists. And it, yeah, so it's a real sensitive thing. But, I mean, I didn't say it, Zechariah said it, so... Holy Spirit said it. So it's a future event. Unfortunately, it's going to be even worse in this tribulation period than the Holocaust was. So uh, The anti-Semitism of the early church, and this is just, if you go in, it, this is a very, very, um, um, we'll say nice overview of the church. It's, it's, it's graphic, but there's a lot more than, than just this. We're just going to kind of go over some of the, the major points of kind of the tragedy, the historical tragedy, um, which caused a divide that can be felt to this day. So there's a, the, the early church, there was a lot of anti-Semitism that started because, you know, the Jews killed Jesus. And I'm, I'm putting that in quotes. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying that that's kind of the mindset people had. Well, these you know, these Jews and all these Christians are now, these Gentiles are now becoming Christians and, um, well, well, we'll get into it. So a recoil against ritualistic devotion to the Mosaic law developed into a deliberate attempt to steer away from the Old Testament. <clears throat> so when the church started becoming more of a political institution, um, they literally tried to separate the Jewish perspective of things from the Christian. And so we have Easter when it's actually uh, first Feast of First Fruits. And then you got Good Friday, which is actually not Friday, but it didn't happen on a Friday, but that's the traditional Passover. And they literally tried to make it, if you look at the calendar dates, Passover and Easter, they sometimes line up, but they tried to get it to where they would never line up. Uh, in the early church because they didn't want to associate those two even though they're the exact same thing we worship the exact same God um, but there was a lot there was so much tension there that they tried to separate those two so or, and others as well so pressures with the Jews led to persecution as the church became a dominant political institution they were literally trying to at one point force force all the Jews to be Christian so if you can imagine there wasn't really a lot of love there you know, like we're supposed to, you know, when we, share, when we share our faith in love, you don't, we don't force people, you know, um, with, you know, uh, like, 
punishment of death and so forth and threats of death and stuff like that and torture, which is literally what happened. So a wedge was driven between, between Jews and Christians, although both worshiped the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that wedge is still felt today. So um, not all Jews, of course. I'm just saying there's some Jews. There's, there's a lot of Jews that are believers, and uh, there's a lot of Jews that aren't. Um, but you can feel that, that tension there um, to this day. So Jewish society has developed a resistance to Jesus as the Messiah, which is probably the worst uh, result of some of this. Christians lost their connection with Jewish history and prophecy, which, of course, is the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. So you can see why the, first, the early church became a very, started out good and then quickly, well, I mean, even when Paul was writing his letters, it was already starting to miss a lot of the points. So, but by the time the, you know, first, second century came around, it was already, there was already a lot of problems. So um, some of the early church leaders were very anti-Semitic. And this might be some, if you've never heard this, this might shock some of y'all, but um, and I'm not saying these people are bad people, but they're people, okay? Some of the early church fathers did a lot of really good things. They also did a lot of bad things. I mean, I'm sure we've all done good things, and we've all done bad things. I mean, they're no different than us, but um, they're human, and, uh, you know, but again, they did good things, they did bad things. So John Calvin, you all probably know who John Calvin is, Calvinism. Um, in his uh, letter, a response to questions and objections of a certain Jew, he said, there the Jews, rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. That's a church leader. Okay, so um, like I said, we've, we've made mistakes, and, and it was certainly very tense in the early church. Martin Luther, who knew who Martin Luther was? Head of the Reformation, Reformation right? Um, did a lot of really good things. Had a real interesting childhood. Um, he was a lawyer. He was going to be a lawyer, I believe. And then he um, had an had an experience with a lightning storm. That he prayed, you know, God, if you protect me from this lightning, I'll become a monk. And of course, the lightning stopped. He became a monk, and then spent most of his life trying to figure out how we are saved by faith, or how we, how man could be saved. Um, because of how bad we are, he would beat himself up. He'd leave himself out in the in the snow and the ice, and um, just tear, just you know, torture himself. And then when he came, someone, one of the, uh, I think it was a monk or someone, came up to him and said, "Hey, check out this passage in Habakkuk." And it was about, um, uh, I can't remember the passage now, but it was basically salvation by faith. So, and that led him to question all these things, and eventually wrote the his theses and. These high theses? Anyway, there you go. And, uh, but anyway, Martin Luther did a lot of good things, but these are some of the things he said um, in the book, The Jews and Their Lies. So what then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us and we know they're lying and blasphemy and cursing, we do not tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. First, their synagogue should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt. So they may not ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it, and they ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians. 
And of course, Jesus is a Jew. So, I'm, I, yeah, it's dark. Um, he goes on, he says, Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. They perpetuate the same things that they do in their synagogues. They ought to be put under one roof or a stable like gypsies in order that they may realize they are not masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives as they complain of incessantly before God with bitter wailing. And it goes on. Um, Oregon of Alexandria. Does anyone know that name? Oregon? Okay. Looks like origin, but it's Oregon. Um, he contributed to many early church doctrines. Um, he's actually the guy that's responsible with him and Augustine with allegorizing the scriptures. So when the church became a very big political organization, it became very politically incorrect to say that Jesus was going to rid the world of its evil rulers and replace them with himself. And so that became kind of the start of allegorizing, well, he's not really going to come rule on earth. He's going to rule in our hearts. That's where that started. And um, it, it's, it's a reason why a lot of eschatology or end-time study is very muddled and, and confused to, confusing to a lot of people these days because they've been taught something else. Um, he, he said, Oregon said, we may thus assert in utter confidence that the Jews will not return to their earlier situation for they have committed the most abominable of crimes in forming this conspiracy against the savior of the human race. Hence the city where Jesus suffered was necessarily destroyed. The Jewish nation was driven from its country and another people was called by God to the blessed election. So this is one of the starts of, well, Israel's been replaced because of all the bad things they did. You know, that's, that's kind of where a lot of this started. So it's unfortunate, but it's part of history. Uh, he, again, he um, started the allegorization of scripture. He, Augustine continued it. Um, and that's why our eschatology in, in effect is, thankfully we have good eschatology here at Stillwater Bible, but a lot of places don't. Um, don't really understand the literal nature of eschatology. So, all right, so let's move on. Medieval Crusades. I grew up thinking the Crusades were a real great and honorable thing. You know, I watched the Robin Hood cartoon, you know, King John went off on the Crusades, and I thought he was doing great things. And then you read the history books, and uh, it's a little darker than that. So Muslims were actually, it was actually the, these soldiers with crosses on them, you know, they were coming in the name of Jesus to take back the Holy Land. So they are literally going and pillaging and murdering Muslims and then Jews. It was supposed to be Muslims only, they were told, but they, uh, it was just everybody. It was a slaughter. Um, I read somewhere, I don't remember where I read it, but there, that supposedly the crusade, the crusaders had games where they see how many babies they could stack up. Uh, Put on a fit on a sword so i mean I'm, I'm sorry that's dark but um it was a very dark time so uh, after the crusades many jews migrated east where some settled in poland <clears throat> and they were there for a very long time until Hitler. yeah um but there is a without getting into all the i'm, I'm going to briefly talk about some of the politics that kind of led to more of the modern anti-Semitism, but we have the Inquisition as well, organized by the Catholic Church to punish heresy throughout Europe and Americas. Um, they would go from village to village and um, threaten um, people and basically, are you, for, are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? And they would try to, you know, they would torture them if they weren't and they would be punished. If they, it was just a lot of different, um, it, it was just a very bad time. But 
Many thousands of Jews and Muslims were tortured and executed. Um, and of course, this was a very dark time for the for the Catholic Church. And uh, um, so, if you're if you're if if anyone in here knows any Catholics, I'm not saying Catholics are bad people. It's just the the Church and the the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church have a very dark history. So um, you could just say all of history is dark, but. Many thousands of Jews and Muslims were tortured. Uh, lasted for several hundred years. You've probably heard the Spanish Inquisition. Um, actually went through 1492. What does that year make anyone think of? Columbus. Columbus, right? There's actually speculation that Columbus may have been Jewish. And he was actually escaping Spain because all the Jews were being expelled from Spain. So, who knows. <clears throat> so, Catholic after 1800... Catholics and Protestants alike increased anti-Jewish sentiment. Just more and more hatred toward these people who, you know, they're, they're, oh, well, they're responsible for our Savior's death. And it's like, well, no. But, I mean, there's just a lot of, a lot of hatred. Germany had the largest Jewish popula population with the inflation and depression of the 1920s. The Weimar Republic which was actually the first democratic republic. Um, it was formerly the Second Reich, but they call it the Weimar Republic. It was very much supported by Jews, and of course it didn't help Germany's economic problems. So of course that brought on more hatred to the Jews because, well, they supported a system that didn't work. Jewish ethnicity was then targeted, and hatred of Jews increased. And then, of course, we have Hitler's rise to power, and he immediately targets... The Jews. Does anyone know what Hitler was doing while, during the last days of the war, well, the Europe European campaign? You've got Russia on the on the east. You've got the Allies on the west, surrounding Berlin and making their way toward where Hitler is at in his bunker. And rather than try to like defend Berlin, and of course his his empire, basically, he's ordering that all the extermination camps basically ramp up, kill as many people as you can. That, that was his, so you can see how it's, it's, it's evil. Uh, the anti-Semitism um, is just a real evil thing, and it was, I'll just say, yeah, it's satanic. I mean, it was obviously an attempt to eliminate a race of people, so, and he nearly succeeded, but of course he didn't. But um, in his last days, he was, more concerned with the with eliminating the Jews than saving his own country. So, um, as Christians, we need to understand the stigma of Christianity from a Jewish perspective. It's it's kind of hard to say that there's a stigma of Christianity, but unfortunately, in many cases, if you go up to a Jewish Jewish person and say I'm a Christian, they'll think they, that you hate them. Um, if if a Jewish person is being faced with Jesus as their Messiah, they it confuse sometimes confuses them because they think, well, do I am I Jewish anymore? Because now I'm a Christian. I'm one of these Christians. I mean, am I still Jewish? That's actually a question that gets raised by by many uh, Messianic Jews. So um, because there's such a divide there, um, it's just a real real hard thing. <clears throat> so what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, obviously. And this should be just common sense for all of us, but don't participate in prejudice or hatred against, of course, anybody, um, including Jews. Obviously, it's evil. Um, just remember Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance, 
nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there, we've got past the dark stuff, very dark history of the church, the Catholic, the Protestants, the Catholics, the Jews alike, um, just very dark, bloody history. Um, there's a lot of books out there on the subject. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a very dark time, but you could say we're living in probably the best period of the church. I mean, the, the church had a very hard past, and uh, I think it's got a very tough future ahead of it, obviously, moving forward. Uh, we're seeing, the, 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 you could say, the birth pangs of persecution even now. Um, so who knows what's going to happen, how long we're going to be here before he returns, um, and how, long, how bad the persecution is going to get. So anyway, that's the dark stuff. Let's get out of the dark stuff. Let's move to the festivals now. Whew. That was tough, wasn't it? All right. So, we're getting into the lighter stuff. Overview of the festivals. So, how many festivals of Moses exist? Um, it, we're going to be looking a lot at the, uh, the, the, uh, graph, the, the graphics, the figures, I guess. Um, so, this picture on 5.1, which is a menorah, or menorah, it kind of represents, just graphically, the Feasts of Moses from kind of start to finish. Um, and how they've been fulfilled so far and how some of them have not been fulfilled yet. But there's a little question mark by the ones where they haven't been fulfilled and maybe that's how they'll be fulfilled. But this picture didn't have the question marks on it initially, so I added them because it's still future. We don't know. So we have seven feasts of Moses, the festivals of Moses. That's how many exist. <clears throat> So how many total festivals of Israel exist? We talked about this briefly last week. Anyone know? So they celebrate the seven feasts, and then there's how many more that were added later? I'll give you a hint. Esther. Which feast was that? was added later. Purim. Purim. Yeah, it's still being observed. Um, so Feast of Purim was added later, so there's eight, and then there's one more. Hanukkah. Everyone's, yeah, everyone, yeah, it's also called the Feast of Dedication, that's what Hanukkah means. A rededication of the temple, really. Okay, so there's actually nine Feasts of Israel, but we're going to focus on the seven Feasts of Moses. So, I say Feasts of Moses because they were given to Moses. Alright, so how many Sabbaths are there based on Leviticus 23? You don't have to go count them. I'm going to add them up for you. So there are, of course, 52 weeks in a year. So weekly Sabbaths, there's 52. There's the festival of Peshach or Passover. And it actually includes unleavened bread and first fruits in some cases. So sometimes when people say Passover, they, they include. Um, it's kind of like saying the holidays. We include, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year. But... It's not really the same thing, but it's kind of the way, you know. So, 52 Sabbaths. There's seven days in the Festival of Peshach. Sorry, I didn't give that. So, 52 and then seven. Who has a calculator? There you go. <clears throat> Festival of Weeks. That's one day. <laughs> the Festival of Weeks is one day. So, <clears throat> Festival of Trumpets. And I'll bring my trumpet that day. My my uh, sh my shofar. 
<clears throat> so Festival of Trumpets is one. And sometimes they actually add another day to it, but that's later. The, the because does anyone know what the festival of uh, trumpets is? What else is called the Jewish? Anyone? New Year Rosh Hashanah. It's also called Rosh Hashanah. So it's actually the Jewish New Year, and it's it's uh, starts with the new moon that that month. So have you, has anyone ever seen a new moon? It looks like this, and, it, and that's the, okay. I love. I do astrophotography on the side. If you didn't know that, it, I'm a nerd. Yes, but I like to take pictures of planets, deep space objects, stars. Stars are really not fun to take pictures of. But um, the moon, the new moon, is the one thing I can never get a picture of because it's always in the evening, and I have two kids, and I never have time to get out there, and and yeah. So, and it usually goes, it's usually right on that. So you've got, I'm going to give you an astronomy lesson real quick. So you've got the sun here, sun, and then you have the earth here, and then you have the moon kind of right there. And so the sun's light is hitting the, this side of the, of the moon. So we're seeing just a little sliver, just a little light sliver. It's a real thin moon. So, yeah, that's a new moon. I can never get a picture of that. I really want to. I, I just take my phone and go, there, that's my attempt. So about every couple of months, I'm like, or every month or so, I, I'm trying to get a picture of that. So I've got calendar reminders telling me when the new moon is. But, yeah. So anyway, new moon. And by the way, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because the extra day that's added for Rosh Hashanah is because sometimes you can't see the new moon. So they're not sure exactly when it's the new moon. So they kind of give it two days to kind of be sure. But if there's clouds, if there's any clouds, it's really hard to see that. So, but yeah, so, uh, so day of atonement, there's one day. And if I've lost you, we've got weekly Sabbaths, 52, peace shack or Passover, seven. Festival of weeks is one day. Festival of trumpets is one day. Day of atonement. What else is that called? Does anyone know? Yom Kippur. What's Yom mean? Day. So in Genesis, day one is Yom one. Or, yeah. Yom is just Hebrew word for day. So Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is one day. The Festival of Tabernacles, that's the, that's the annual camping trip. So seven days. We're going to talk about that in a little more detail later. And uh, Shemini, <laughs> this one's always fun. Shmini, Shmini, Atzeret. I'll just say eighth day of assembly. So that's one day. That was my attempt. That was a terrible attempt. So I apologize, Jewish people. So why study the festivals? Why are we even talking about this? Well, because first of all, they are God's times. They are literally called the Hamoyadim, or God's appointed times. So he talks about how they are the appointed seasons. Um... The verse is Leviticus 23.2. It says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy or set apart convocations. My appointed times are these. Okay, so they are appointed by him, or God. And the point of this class, finding Jesus in the Old Testament, they foreshadow who? Jesus. 
Surprise, surprise, right? Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to start with Passover. And I gave you the little Hebrew letters for how, how you say it. Of course, it's right to left. If you want to learn Hebrew, it's, it's a fun language. Very graphic, very detailed. Um, the scripture, of course, is Leviticus 23, 4 through 5. So Leviticus, how many read Leviticus like all the time? Yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hard book, but it's got a lot of good stuff in it. All right, Leviticus 23, 4 through 5 says, These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations for which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. And it says, In the first month... Now, this is the Jewish month, of course, and I've got the uh, months, by the way, on the back there, uh, or the days, I should say. So if you aren't sure how a Jewish day works, that's what the Hebrew days are called, and the English days, and then the days of the week, and then, the, of course, the times. So you've got Greek and Hebrew ways of looking at days there. So on the 14th, or sorry, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, that month is called Nisan, by the way. Um, it's the first month in the Hebrew, you could say, the religious calendar. So the, he the Jews have two calendars. It's the same months, but the New Year starts at different months. Okay, it's kind of weird, I know, it's kind of confusing. Um, but Nisan, N-I, it's like Nisan, but it's one S, N-I-S-A-N. Um, it was actually named, uh, I can't remember what it was called before, it's in the Old Testament there, but was later named Nisan. Um, it's the first month on the religious calendar. So when, when we say first month, and then there's a new calendar established later, which we'll talk about. So on the, on the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Mm. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. Well, after eating bread for seven days, great. Okay, so <clears throat> it's observed on the 14th of Nisan, or 14, N-I-S-A-N, which is around March or April of our calendar, of course, which is around, what, what do we celebrate then? Easter. Easter, how interesting. So it commemorates God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. One might say that Israel was born when it came out of Egypt. And there's actually a tradition that it was born on the same day that on, uh, on uh, Pentecost, or Shavuot, as it's called. We'll talk about that later when we get to that feast. So the procedures are on the 10th of Nisan. This is the the, how Passover is observed. On the 10th day of Nisan, or the first month as it's called, each family selects and presents their lamb. The lamb was required to be a perfect male with no blemish. So it couldn't have any 
bleeding, scars, you know, it had to be perfect. And the priest would generally, or a worker in the, or a Pharisee or something like that would usually later um, go through and verify if it's a good enough lamb or not. <clears throat> the lamb must be kept inside the home for four days. Can you, any of you want to do that? Try that? So it becomes a pet, really. When you have a lamb, they're cute, they're adorable, you know. But And you keep it in the house for four days, you get to know it, you get to, kids get to enjoy it. But then, something bad happens. On the 14th, the lamb is slaughtered. So you got to take this pet that your kids have, and you have attached, going to attach to, and you have to kill it. So it's a really sad thing. It's roasted with fire and fully consumed before morning. Then you eat unleavened bread with bitter herbs. It's it's usually spicy herbs or bitter herbs. It's to remind you that this is a very, literally a bitter event. Um, and of course, not a bone is to be broken. Can't break the lamb's bones. And of course, as we read this, the Holy Spirit will re, will basically reveal to you. Oh, that sounds like Jesus. Oh, that sounds like Jesus. That sounds like Jesus. You know, this whole thing sounds like Jesus, right? Well. He fulfills them, and we're going to talk about that. So the Jesus is the Lamb of God, and there's tons of verses, and I have just five of them. Uh, John 1.29, that's, of course, John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And anytime you're in the Scripture and the Pharisees get upset or the religious leaders get upset, highlight that because they're getting upset for a good reason. So when John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they're like, you know, you're calling him the Messiah is basically why they're upset. You're calling him the Son of God, and you know. So, <clears throat> uh, Isaiah fifty-three seven. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So he did not open his mouth. So, First Peter one eighteen through nineteen. You're not redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Revelation thirteen eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the word of the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And another one is Revelation 6, 16 through 17. And they said to us, fall, the, uh, said to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, so Jesus is the Lamb of God. I think we established that with five verse, four or five verses. Um, the Jesus was presented on the 10th of Nisan. And I'll go back to lesson two. What a coincidence, right? You're supposed to laugh, chuckle, you know. So, no, sorry. What a coincidence. Sarcasm, right? All right, so Jesus was presented on the 10th of Nisan. Um, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest. So he's riding on a donkey, literally presenting himself to Jerusalem as his king, or as their king. They are quoting Psalm 118. Okay, if you read Psalm 118, that's what they're singing from and so forth, which is a passage, a messianic passage about the day of the, when the Jesus was, or the Messiah is going to be presenting himself. And that's where we get the, this is the day. You know, that's a great song on a, you know, if you're like me, you're raised in the Baptist church, this is, that's, you sing that every morning, every Sunday morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. Well, that's actually a messianic verse about the day the Lord's being presented to Jerusalem. So 
Um, so, of course, some of the Pharisees in the crowd say they're upset. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are they upset? And, of course, Jesus says, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. I really wish they would have been silent. I wanted to, I would love to have seen that. Just rocks crying out, you know. Anyway, because you know it would have happened if he said it would. So, um, but anyway, um, so that that's when Jesus was, the, the lamb, you could say, was presented. It was on the same day. It was on Passover, or it was when, sorry, it wasn't on Passover, it was the 10th, which is four days before. Jesus is sinless. There's a lot of verses. I've got like eight here. I'm not going to read them all. But, uh, of course, he who committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. That's 1 Peter 2.22. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and him there is no sin, 1 John 3, 5. Of course, even Pilate said, I found no fault in this man. And even Judas, after he betrays Jesus and is possessed by Satan, that's scriptural, says, I uh, betrayed what? Innocent blood, right? So even being possessed by Satan, I don't know if he was at that moment, but being someone that was possessed by the enemy, admitting that the Messiah is sinless, it says a lot there, so... Jesus was sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan, and none of his bones were broken. So they were praising him when they when he entered, and then four days later, depending on how you look at it, three days, four days later, 14th of Nisan, they were crucifying him. So, but coming to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Do you think that the Roman centurion was new scripture and went, oh, I better not break his legs because, no, right? I mean, it's obviously just part of God's plan, but his legs weren't broken, but the other two guys were. <clears throat> All right, so some interesting facts about Passover. Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem annually to observe Passover, and at age 12, Jesus accompanied them. Just some interesting of course, that's Luke 2. In Exodus 12, 6, there is a subtle reference to one dying for all. And I'll just read that for you real quick. Okay, so here's Exodus 12, 6. You shall, it's talking about the lamb. You shall keep it, it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So you have the idea of a group, one lamb, you see. So <clears throat> one dying for all sort of thing there. So The journey from Passover to the deliverance of the Red Sea lasted how many days? Three days. How interesting. What a coincidence. During a Passover Seder, or the Passover ceremony, there are three matzot, or bread, which if you want to see a picture of what those look like, or if you've had them, you, they're just like crackers, basically. But there's a picture on the back. Um, there's three of them that are presented. And of course, we talked about this briefly last week or the week before. Um, matzah, the bread, represents without sin, because there's no leaven in it. And it also is called the sinless one, in some circles. Of course, Jesus is the bread of life. John 6, 32, 35, 41, 48. Um, the cooked matzah is, of course, of all things, pierced and striped. 
Again, another coincidence, right? I mean, God is very specific here. The middle matzah is, you've got three bread, you've got three matzahs. We drew this last time, I know, I'm just going to do it again. You could picture three crosses. You've got the middle one that's broken. Who else was broken? you got Jesus being broken. <clears throat> Of course, it says that he's in the middle on Mark 15, 27. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. The middle matzah, same middle one, is wrapped in a cloth and hidden in the house somewhere. It's a tradition, of course, right? But it's very, as Christians, it immediately becomes clear. The lamb is referenced as his body. And the wine, of course, we talked about this. What's it mixed with? Warm water. And what's the wine? The blood of Jesus, right? Jesus said, this is my blood. And, of course, they mix it with warm water. And if you ask a non-Messianic Jew why they do that, or a rabbi or something, they'll say, just tradition. We don't really know why. It's just always been done that way. And, of course, as Christians, we immediately understand, see the fulfillment, literally. All right, so that's Passover. Any questions before we move on to unleavened bread? Okay, unleavened bread or hog hap matzot. I'm only going to say that once. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so that's in Leviticus 23, 6 through 8. Let me get back there real quick. 23, 6 through 8. Of course, I read it earlier, but... All right, it's observed on the 15th of Nisan through the 20th. You could put 15th through the 20th of Nisan. That's right after Passover. It's, it's part of Passover. I mean, if you're a Jew and you're observing Passover, I actually have Christian friends that observe these feasts, and we'll talk about that later. Like, do you have to observe these things? You know, well, and they do just because they want to, and it's you know it's out of just kind of celebration of these things, and but we'll talk about that later. So it's observed on the fifteenth through the twentieth, which is again around March or April. It commemorates removing the leaven or sin from each household. Sin from each household. So 1 Corinthians, or sorry, Luke 12, 1 says that under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So again, just kind of putting leaven there with sin. And of course, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 8, clean out the old leaven so you may, not, so you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover, there it is. Also has been sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. <clears throat> Alright, so the procedures of Feast of Unleavened Bread, I'm going to put this pen down because it's distracting me. It begins the day after Passover. And again, the Jewish day starts in the evening, so... Uh, what time is it now? It's 7.30. So really this is uh, Thursday in the Jewish calendar. So <clears throat> because of the way, does anyone know where we get that? Creation. The, the evening and the morning were the 
first day, evening and morning were the second day. So that's where we get that. And we still have seven day weeks. Of course, most secular societies now are trying to make sun. Have you seen those calendars where Sunday's at the end of the week now? It's kind of confusing. So yeah, Sunday's the first day of the week. Saturday's the last day of the week. So, All right, so <clears throat> you eat unleavened bread for seven days. It's a lot of carbs. Well, it's unleavened, so I guess it's yeah. a lot of crackers for seven days. On the first day, observe as a Sabbath, a Sabbath with no laborious work. So remember, Sabbath is not Saturday, just Saturday. Sabbath is a, there's 70 Sabbaths, you could say, during the year. 52 of them are Saturdays, and then there's the rest. For seven days, present an offering by fire to the Lord. And that was fulfilled by Jesus as the, of course, sinless bread of life. <clears throat> so after Passover, after the sacrifice, you have a remembrance of, or a foreshadowing of Jesus being the sinless bread of life. And then later you could say, remember it. So how do we as Christians observe these festivals? And should we? This is a question that got brought up, I think it was last week. Um, it's a good question. I mean, we start talking about this stuff and immediately it's like, do, are we, is this compulsory to us? Do we have to, you know, um, so Christians do celebrate the same festivals, but in different ways. So we got the Lord's Supper, of course, that's a, that's Passover. Basically, we just celebrate it. Not exactly the same way as the, tra the rabbinical traditions and so forth. Um, is that a bad thing that we do it differently? No. I mean, we're doing exactly what we're told, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And uh, we take the cup, we drink, we eat the bread, um, you know. Um, and then we have Good Friday, of course, which is traditionally set by the church as Friday. Um, that's technically a sort of celebration of Passover. So, and then, of course, Easter, Easter morning, we hunt eggs because Jesus hunted eggs, right? No, um, no, Easter is technically the first of, Feast of First Fruits, which is the next feast. Um, if you want to look at that sheet with the menorah, menorah, or the seven-branched candlestick. When you read that in the scripture about the temple, which we're going to talk about the temple too. Um, there was one of these in the tabernacle, and of course when Solomon, we're talking on Sunday morning about Solomon building the uber temple, I'll call it. Uh, we'll talk about how much that thing cost in today's dollars. Um, I went through and calculated the value of gold and silver, and, and it was, yeah, for this little tiny building, it was like, it's a ridiculous amount of money. But um, anyway, so Passover, unleavened bread, unleavened bread, Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost are all fulfilled now. Uh, Feast of First Fruits is, would be what we call Easter, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. All right, so this is gonna this is gonna make you guys go, whoa! I didn't know that, but if you did know that, great. Zechariah fourteen is a passage about the millennial kingdom or the thousand year reign of Christ when Jesus comes and rules on this earth. Um, there's so many questions I have about the millennium. I wish we would do a millennium study because there's it's such an interesting time period. There was Jesus will be here for a thousand years on this earth, and that's just and people are gonna be born with Jesus here. And people are going to grow up with the creator of the universe in another country. 
Um, and there will be believers in him. There will not be believers in him. There will be Christians here that live forever in the same time. There will be people with bodies that will die. So, I mean, it's a really interesting time, um, unlike any other we've had in this. And um, But Zechariah 14 is a passage about this, and it talks about, it kind of indicates basically that the festival of booths or tabernacles will be compulsory. We will have to follow that feast. Okay, I'm just going to say that that's what that, you can study it later if you want. Don't argue with me about it. Read Zechariah 14. I'll read you the passage that I'm talking about. But before you think that sounds terrible, just listen. So it says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. What's that? Oh. Um, if the family of Egypt does not go up to enter, or the rain, no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague which the Lord smites the nation who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Here's a good spin on that. This is a one-week camping trip every year. All right? Sweet, right? How many know what the Feast of Booths is or don't know what the Feast of Booths is? You literally sit in a, a booth... Or it's 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 like a tent, but it's made very flimsily. Is that the right? Is that a word? It's a very poorly built tent. You can see into the sky. The rain can come in. It's to remind us of the wilderness wanderings, and it's also right to remind us that God takes care of us. Even if you know, remind us that well, we're going into a permanent house later. Maybe that's a picture of going into our permanent dwelling. Um, but He's protecting us in this temporary dwelling. So it's. The kids are going to love it. Parents may not so much love to, you know, go out in this. But Zechariah 14 does indicate that this will be a compulsory feast. So if you want rain. So I'll let you guys study that on your own. Don't get terrified. Oh, my gosh, we have to celebrate this feast. Do we have to do this now? Don't, don't ask questions like that. It's, 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 people do it. I mean, Dave technically celebrates it with his with uh, trail life. Like every week, it seems like. He's, he goes camping all the time. So... Um, it's really just a camping trip, and uh, when you listen to Jews that go through it, they love it, and the kids love it, and the parents not so much. But, um, but yeah, it's just a fun time for them, and they they remember they have a good time of remembrance. So, anyway, just Zechariah fourteen, check it out, study it yourself. If you have any, if you find anything that might indicate different, let me know. We'll talk about it. But number three, we are not obligated to observe the festivals. That doesn't mean we are not supposed to observe the festivals or you shouldn't observe the festivals. You can if you want to. Nothing, But don't feel like you have to or I'm not saved or I have to or I'm not a good enough, I'm not as spiritual as I should be unless I do this. It's nothing like that. We are not obligated to observe the festivals. And there's your verse, Galatians 5.18. <clears throat> we should not be critical, though, of those who do observe the festivals. I, like I said, I've got Christian friends that observe very specifically these festivals and they have a great time doing it they do it just because it's part of scripture it's something they just like to do and i frankly that sounds fun to me sometimes um who knows but uh we should not be critical of those who do observe the festivals they are not strictly a jewish tradition so don't think all these feasts are just traditions these are these are literally times that god appointed the jews did not make these festivals up Love one another, of course, John 13, 34. 
new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. So don't get mean, don't be mean to people that observe these or be critical of those that observe these. Don't get on Facebook and say, you're not supposed to be on there. You know, um, you're not, I mean, there's a lot of that going on on social media. Uh, Christians arguing with Christians. I saw some last night and I just had to turn it off because it was, it's just sad seeing what some of the Christians are saying to other Christians. But um, anyway, so love one another. There's not a lot of that going on, but there needs to be. The festivals foreshadow our Savior. Obviously. As Christians, this is the summary now. As Christians, we should understand our Jewish roots. We don't need to start putting ourselves under the Mosaic Law. We don't need to do all that. Obviously, it's scriptural that we are not under the Mosaic Law. We are free from the law. We're under the law of grace, law of love. But we should understand these things because it helps us as Christians have that perspective, especially as we're reading, studying scripture. Anti-Semitism is evil. You could put satanic. I mean, it's literally a tool of the enemy to eliminate the Jewish people. He tried to eliminate the Messiah from ever being born. He's trying to eliminate the Jewish people from even existing. It's a miracle that that country's even there. If you think about it, that 1948, that there is actually a country over there, which is very tiny, but it's yet one of the biggest producers of... It's funny because there's, there's scripture that talks about when the Jews are in the land. When you see that throughout the Old Testament, when the Jews are in the land, the land is very prosperous. And there's nothing there. I mean, it's a useless agricultural everything. But when the Jews are in the land, it's miraculously prosperous. When they're not there, it's just a wasteland. Uh, when the Jews were... Before the country was formed again, there was there was nothing. I mean, it was just desolate um, desert. And then when the, now it's it's prosperous, and I think it's like one of the fourth biggest producers of fruit, I think, in the world right now. But and it's I think it's smaller smaller surface area than than Oklahoma maybe. I don't know. It's a tiny tiny little strip of land. So and of course they're supposed to have more than that. They've never actually lived in all the land they were promised. So that will be later, of course. <clears throat> we should love all people just as Jesus loved us. The Jewish festivals are ordained by God. They are commemorative of Israel's history. They are prophetic of the Messiah. They are fulfilled by Jesus. They are not compulsory or required, but they can be observed. Of course, we kind of do observe them in ways. We just, there's a, I hate to say it this way, but there's a pagan twist on how we observe them. Easter, you know, if you want to look into the history of why it's called Easter and um, bunny rabbits and stuff like that, yeah, it's kind of a dark history too. But, um, but yeah, we do celebrate these things just, and, we, and it's, it's not bad. Don't say, well, it's bad that we call it Easter. It's bad the way we do this. It's bad the way we do that. There's just some differences. So um, if you want to get into the, some of these feasts and maybe observe them yourself out of, you know, just celebrating them, that's fine. Nothing wrong with it. But don't feel like you have to. Okay. So two memory verses, Colossians 2, 16 through 17. This is, of course, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. So if you don't think that the festivals are a shadow of what is to come, well, that verse just 
Yeah, just told you it is. But the substance belongs to Christ. So it's a shadow of things to come. The feasts are basically the substance of Christ. Uh, John 13, 34 is a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, of course, and that I have loved you and that you love one another. 